All right, good to see everybody this morning. Hey, I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes from your uh, program bulletin. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and uh, we're going to be talking about counting the cost. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. You guys ready? Here we go. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. It's a church that Paul planted on one of his missionary journeys. And God used a, an influential, wealthy businesswoman by the name of Lydia and a jailer to start this church. Kind of an interesting way of getting a core group and starting a church, right? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter during one of his imprisonments in Rome. And really the theme of the book, the dominant theme is that of joy. And so Paul tells us really three things from Philippians chapter 3. He tells us who he is. So really his parentage, his, his heritage, kind of his resume, his credentials, who he was before he came to Christ. And then he kind of, you know, follows up with this, um, you know, intense passion and, and fervency for knowing Christ. All, the, all his past, everything that he thought that he gained, everything that he thought was valuable in comparison to Christ means absolutely nothing. Philippians 3 verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here's point number one if you're taking notes. Be filled with an attitude of joy. Be filled with an attitude of joy. The first thing I want you to notice is how Paul is, he's urging these believers to pursue Christ and to pursue this, this attitude of joy. The word finally literally means a conclusion or a closing. Paul is, is about to, you know, he's putting the, the bow on the present, right? He's trying to close the end of his letter. You know, I heard of a young boy who was able to attend big church with his father because he was old enough. And uh, as they attended the Sunday morning service together, the boy's father was telling him what was happening in each part of the service so the boy would understand everything. As the choir stood to sing, the son, the son would ask his father, well, why are those people standing? And the father would simply reply, oh, they're about to sing for the church. Later in the service, the congregation, they stood to sing, and the little boy asked his father, you know, why they were standing. And the father told the son, they're standing because now it's time for all the people to stand and sing songs 
The son nodded and his head in reply. And then after the singing, the preacher came up and started preaching his message. And later in his sermon, he said, now finally. And the son stared at his father and said, well, daddy, what, what does that mean? When the preacher says, now finally. And the father replied, not a thing, son, not a thing. Kind of a rough crowd at 1030, but that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. So listen, pastors are notorious. I'm notorious for saying, okay, I'm going to land the plane. And then I'll go another 15 minutes, right? This is what Paul's doing. He's getting ready to land the plane. He's trying to wrap things up. And he mentions in verse 1 that we should rejoice in the Lord. That God is the source of our joy. You know, joy is mentioned 16 times in this letter. Four chapters, 16 times. You think joy is a dominant theme? Kind of important? The source of our joy, as Paul tells us, as the Holy Spirit gives us this word, the source is Christ. This is why Paul says with such emotion, rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice is in the mood of a command. It's an imperative in the Greek. So it's not a present tense verb. Present tense is kind of an, an ongoing, continuous thing. An imperative is it's a command, not a suggestion. God is telling us through his word to rejoice in Christ, to rejoice in our relationship with the Lord. Here's one thing that I love about the Bible. The Bible is relevant and it's timeless. You know, sometimes people come to the Bible and, oh, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not relevant, it's archaic. You know, really, does, does, this, does this matter? Does, can this help me in my life? Absolutely. You know why I say it's relevant and timeless? Because God is timeless. Because God is relevant. This book is, is, is relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It's, a, it's in this mood of a command, right? Sometimes we try to find joy. And so many other things. We try to find joy, you know, in, in relationships. We try to find, you know, joy in um, our, our financial assets. You know, here's, here's the deal about financial assets. You know, a lot of people, they, they bank their joy, their confidence on the numbers, uh, their bank account numbers, right? Like what they have in the account or the retirement portfolio, the 401k or 403b or whatever you got, right? Stock market. Here's the deal. Those numbers that you have will be someone else's number someday. A lot of people, they want to bank their, their, their joy on, on a relationship. But you know what? Sometimes, you know, marriage is not always hunky-dory. It's not always just awesome and fantastic. First service, I got a few women saying amen. I mean, seriously. I told the guys, I said, no, no one said nothing. All the guys for a service, they were very, very smart. Keep, they kept their mouth shut, right? Sometimes we, we find our, we want to connect our personal joy maybe to someone else. You ever had someone really close to you backstab you, turn on you? Well, if you've connected that joy to that person and that relationship is gone, guess where the joy goes? goes away. Sometimes we connect our joy to so many different things. You know, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is fleeting. You know, happiness is based on circumstances. It's based on external things in your life, right? Happiness is, man, highs and lows. But joy 
is a fruit of the Spirit. Happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is rooted in the will of God. I like to say it this way. The, the outworking of joy in your life is the result of a life of, of obedience to Christ. So if you really want to experience this, this joy in your life, pursue Christ. Follow hard after him. Pursue him. Live a life of obedience to him. Right? Do what he says. Strive to honor him in your life and, and surrender to him. You know, joy is not this superficial kind of happiness that's, you know, based on factors and people and stuff. Joy is dependent upon Christ. Joy comes from the Lord. I, I like to say it this way, joy is, is richer and deeper and more meaningful than happiness. Joy can be more permanent. It's more lasting because it's connected to, to Christ. It's, it's a work that the Spirit of God does in our lives. We are commanded to find our endless joy in God. John Piper, he was the one who kind of coined the, the, the phrase, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. I think it's a beautiful, true statement. God is glorified when you find ultimate satisfaction and joy in him. When you do that, he rules and reigns supreme. He's like, he, he's number one. He has your heart. He has your affections, right? Because you're satisfied in him. So John Piper talks about Christian hedonism, finding your ultimate pleasure, not in earthly pleasure, sexual relationships, but finding your ultimate pleasure in your relationship with Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, let's pick up verses 2 to 4. Paul then, he, he goes from saying, you know, have an attitude of joy and, he, you know, be po it's positive. And then now he goes, he shifts to the negative. He shifts gears. Now he's like, he's warning the church about like the, 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 the circumcision, um, these Judaizers. This is what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Just kind of pause real quick. We are so prone to boast and to put so much confidence in the flesh, don't we? I mean, what do we boast about? We boast about, you know, family we come from. People boast about their race. They, 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 they boast about how many languages they can speak. They boast about their education. They boast about status. Paul's like, listen, you know what? We put no confidence in the flesh. We're not going to boast in anything that we have. Then he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Here's point number two. Avoid those who can rob you of joy. So number one, cultivate an attitude of joy. You know, someone said that joy, it, the acronym for joy, which I thought was interesting. Heard it years ago and it's like stuck in my head. So now I'm going to get it stuck in your head. You ready? Joy, Jesus, others, yourself. That's good, huh? Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. It's the Jesus way. It's the Philippians 2 way. Amen? Okay. Now, is it stuck in your head? Joy. Jesus, others, yourself. Okay, good. All right. It's like a rough crowd, man. Wake up. 
I know it's been kind of hot, but come on, man. We put the ACs on. Let, let, come on, get comfortable. All right, so um, where was I at? Verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And you might be like, what in the world is going on? What's he talking about? We're going to break it down. Paul, he's warning the church of Philippi about a specific group. He's talking about the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, they were known everywhere for their strict requirements concerning religion. They were a strict Jewish sect, and they tried to make outward requirements essential, that's the key word, essential for salvation. So it was, it was external religion in place of internal commitment to Christ. The Judaizers thought that if you were not a Jew, you were not saved. Right, they elevated race. Kind of interesting, you know, kind of culture, right? People like to elevate their race and their heritage. Here's the deal. The gospel breaks down all racial you know, gender, socioeconomic barriers. We are the foot, it's level at the cross. We're level because we're all made in the image of God. So the Judaizers were all about Old Testament laws and traditions and oral traditions and eating certain foods and honoring certain days of the week and, you know, keeping the Sabbath. And it was all about religion, right? It wasn't really this relationship with God. A lot of people, they just jump through the hoops thinking that they're saved, but they're really not. They're just religious. But there's no love for Christ. There, there's, there's no surrender. There's no, there's no learning. There's no walking with Christ. Then Paul, he, he first calls them uh, dogs. Now, um, in, in ancient biblical times, you know, the, the term dog meant something totally different than today. Today, a dog is fluffy furry. It's like, it's like another person in the family, right? Anybody tracking with me? Okay. <laughs> and listen, and that's all, that's good. You know what I mean? Like people, they get really connected to their pets. Like their pets become like another member of the family. They like sleep with them in the bed. I just don't understand that one, but it's all good, right? But back in Jewish culture, dogs were flea bitten scavengers, man. They were scavengers. Historians tell us that, you know, the Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. And what the Romans did was, we know history, I mean, they would, they would line up, you know, up to like 6,000 people. And they'd crucify them all at the same time. History tells us that crucifixion was a, was a slow death by asphyxiation. You literally would suffocate to death. Because you were, un, you were unable to lift yourself up. To, you were gasping for breath. And it was totally destroying your central nervous system. But they say, based on crucifixion, that they would see dogs in the streets carrying human bones in their mouth. Because oftentimes they wouldn't leave the corpse. They wouldn't bury the corpse. They would leave the corpse on the cross. And the ravens and the pranes, dogs, scavengers, they would come and, and they, that was their meal. And so dogs would rip these human bones and, and treat it like play toys. The Jews, now this is what's interesting. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. Like I'm a Jew, and if you're not a Jew, you're a dog. You're a flea-bitten scavenger. Like you're running the streets. Like you're dirty, you're filthy. 
Um, but here's what Paul does. He, he uses the word dogs and he attributes it to Orthodox Jews. So the great reversal takes place. Paul is calling, um, he's calling these, these Judaizers dogs, the true dogs, um, not the Gentiles who are living amongst the Jews. Then he, he says they're evildoers. Now, why does he do that? Why is Paul so just bam, 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 bam? He's so honest. Because they're teaching, they were teaching sinners. They, they were saved by faith plus good works. Essentially, if you keep the works of the law, then you're saved. But we know the Bible doesn't teach that. We know in Romans, it says, For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the works of the law, the keeping of the law, the Bible is very clear. No human being will be justified by the works of the law. Here's the reality. We are all messed up. I mean, we're, it's level playing field. You can't do enough. You can't earn enough. We need God's grace. Only Christ can make us righteous. It's, it's through the, the, the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, how do you know you're a sinner? The law condemns you. The law shows you that, that you have fallen short, that you desperately need a Savior, that you need Christ. The law is like a mirror. You know, when you look in a mirror, you, you see your blemishes, right? You, you see your imperfections. As you get older, you start seeing more wrinkles. You start seeing, you know, gray hair. I mean, literally just recently, I was looking in the mirror, and I, I told my wife, I was like, I'm losing my hair. I'm freaking out, man. I'm losing my hair. I could see the scalp. Here's the deal. They said that if one of the side effects or symptoms of COVID is you could lose your hair. Well, I got COVID, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm losing my hair. And I love my hair. My hair is everything to me, right? Now, you might be like, Pastor Elijah, you sound like a woman. Yep, I do. And I can embrace it. I love my hair. And I'm losing it. I can see the scalp. Just like the mirror. The mirror is God's law. It shows us who we really are. It exposes us. It shows the darkness in our own soul that we are lacking. We have sinned against God. And we need his mercy. And we need his grace. And so Christ, can, he can save us. Not the works of the law, but the work of Christ on the cross. That work can save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, if I was going to pick, you know, just a few passages in the Bible that really, like, succinctly, really, concisely lasers in and it clearly defines the gospel, this is it right here. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Salvation is grace plus nothing, not grace plus something. A lot of, a lot of people, they, they put the plus in there. Well, yes, faith in God, but no. We're saved by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, it is a result of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? You know, midnight hour conversion. This guy had nothing. This guy lived a life of thievery. He was a criminal. He was a thug. He's on the cross. 
He's mocking Jesus. Jesus is getting it on both sides. And then this guy has this moment. And it's like the spirit of God opens his heart and he sees Christ for who he is. And he turns to Christ by faith and he places faith in Christ. And today, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He believed in Christ and Christ changed his life. It, it, what, he had no time to do good works. I mean, when he got to heaven, you know, I, I just can only imagine what that was like. He had nothing. But he had everything. Because he said, Christ said I was forgiven. And Christ said I can come to heaven. You know, good works is not the cause of our salvation, but it's the effect. The root of our salvation always produces the fruit of godly living. When you get saved, it should produce godliness in your life. When you get saved, you are, your position in Christ is secure. And what that means is you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That position never changes. You are forgiven. You're a part of God's family. But our practice is that we should live a godly life. Position in Christ moves us practically to live out the gospel. And, you know, sometimes we think, it, you know, I got to live it. I got to live it. I got to do. I got to do. No. Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The gospel is Christ living his life through you. Titus 3, 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not, circle that word not. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Circle the word mercy. It's not what we've done. It's what he's done. Right? It's his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Warren Wearsby, he says, a Christian's good works are the result of his faith, not the basis of his salvation. Now, some people say, well, why do I need Christ? You need Christ because you're a wretched sinner. We're, we, we, are, we are wretched sinners. We are completely alienated, far away from God. Our sins are infinitely great. You know, when people don't want to believe in, in two eternal um, places, heaven and hell. Easy to, easy to go with heaven. I think for some people it's harder for them to believe in hell. Well, how could God do that? You know, he's a loving God. Surely he'll give second chances. Surely he'll let people into heaven. Surely there'll be a redo. Maybe God will grade based on a scale. You know, these people will help these people get in. God doesn't grade on a scale. His scale is grace. His scale is the work of Christ on the cross. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, your sins will be forgiven and, and, and you'll have eternal life. But when it comes to this concept of, of, of hell, I think people downplay hell because they want to act like they're God. They, they want to move into the, the, the seat uh, of the judge. They want to hold the, the gavel. They want to say, no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't jive well with me. And um, I just don't think God would do that. Hell is a real place. When you downplay hell, you're downplaying, you're downplaying your own personal sinfulness. 
if we understood the magnitude and the weight of our sin against the holy God. I mean, our sins are, are infinitely great against an infinite person and deserves infinite punishment. You know, you look at a scale, like if you step on an ant, right? Okay, whatever, right? You kill an ant. If you roundhouse kick the queen of England, that there's going to be some se- severe consequences there. Now take it up to you have sinned against an infinitely holy God. The question of the Bible is, how can God allow rebels into heaven? How can God both be just and and merciful towards sinners? And the answer is the cross of Christ. At the cross, justice and mercy are mingled. Jesus satisfied the just demands of the law. He satisfied God's justice, but he also was a display of God's mercy and love towards humanity. So Paul is calling them out, dogs, evildoers. Then he talks about, you know, they mutilate the flesh. You know, circumcision, you had to do that physical act on a male physical body so that you could be a part of the covenant community and you could be a part of God's chosen people. And so the Judaizers were all about circumcision, keeping traditions, oral, the oral traditions and, and the law. And they said, that, you know, circumcision is essential for salvation. But Paul simply says, no, outward circumcision is only mutilation. The Judaizers, they were focusing on external. A lot of religious people, they focus on external. Loving the poor, serving the poor, right? Getting baptized, giving money to the church. That's all external. Paul's focusing on the internal work of the spirit, which is the gospel. The gospel which can change your life. The Christian life is, 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 is about God's grace. It's not about checklists. You know, there's a story about John Wesley. Heard this story years ago. I thought it was so good. It illustrates this point very well. John Wesley and his friends at college were involved in the Holy Club. And this club was for young men who desired to disciple themselves in every area of the spiritual life. John Wesley's friend nicknamed him Wesley Methodist because he had so many methods of discipline that he tried to keep. After college... John Wesley came to America to be a missionary to the Indians in Georgia. In frustration, John Wesley said, I came to convert the heathen, who will convert me? It is said that John Wesley sailed back to England and became a Christian. John Wesley realized that he could not work his way to heaven. He realized that all this time, he did not know God but only knew religious methods that did not work after all. The checklist of do's and don'ts eventually caused John Wesley to lose his joy. And it was actually a good thing because it drove him to the cross. If you're relying on methods and, and you're disciplined and you're trying to keep the checklist, run to the cross. Run to the cross and ask for forgiveness and Christ will change you. In verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 3, it says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So 
there are some characteristics of like of of, of genuine faith. You're going to worship God in the Spirit. You're going to boast only in the Lord Jesus. And salvation is, is one who puts no confidence in the flesh. True salvation is, is based on, is not based on anything you can do, human attainment, achievement. It is about God and his glory. We have no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing we can boast about. You know, there, we should be amazed. We should be amazed that God has chosen to reach down to us in the depths of our depravity and to forgive us. You know, I think it was, I think it was John Newton who said, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised by people who made it that we didn't think we're going to make it. We're going to be surprised by, um, you know, people who, it's not in my notes, I'm totally fouling this up. Uh, people who did make it, we thought they weren't going to make it. And then he said, but last of all, the greatest wonder of all, that I made it. Isn't that good? That's the greatest wonder of all, that God so loved the world. That includes me. That includes you. He loves us. Philippians 3, 5 and 6. Circumcised on the eighth day. Look at his, look at his resume, his credentials. Look at it's stacked. I mean, this, this guy has one of the, the best resumes being connected to Judaism. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Here's point number three. Examine your own life. Examine your own life. We, we see the credentials. We see his heritage, his parentage. We see his personal achievements. I mean, let's just walk through some of these. He was circumcised outwardly as a Jew, so he had the proper ritual. See, a lot of people think, well, if I get the proper ritual, if, I'm, if I get baptized, hey, I'm good to go. He was an Israelite by birth. He had the proper relationship. You know, some people think, well, my relationship, you know, I was born into a Christian home. My parents are of faith, faith people. And that's good. That's going to be enough for me. It's not. He was from a well-respected tribe named Benjamin. So he had the proper respectability. The first king of Israel came from the tribe. And they were also known for their military skill, the tribe of Benjamin. Everyone respected the tribe of Benjamin. It's not respectability that gets you into heaven. Being a respectable, morally good, upright, standing person. It's not enough. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the proper race according to, to Jewish people. He had the proper race according to the law for salvation. Here's the deal. There's no race superior when it comes to salvation. I mean, this, this, this is what Paul's saying. This, this, this was my thinking. This is what I thought. I was a part of God's people. I was connected to the promises. Superiority. He said... I was a Pharisee, asked for the law, like proper religion, strict, religious, crossed every T, dotted every I. He was doing it right. Paul goes on further and he states, asked to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, it, it, was, it was, before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. And we know Acts, I think Acts 7, he gave the green light. He gave, he gave the go-ahead. He, he gave the final orders for execution. Stoning. 
Stephen, first Christian martyr. And the beautiful thing about Stephen being martyred is Jesus was standing in heaven waiting, calling him home. What a beautiful vision that Stephen had. Jesus standing was very symbolic of you have run the race. That you have run the race, you have finished well. And he goes on, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, 613 Old Testament commandments. His, his credentials are stacked, amazing. He has seven major religious assets. Proper ritual, relationship, race, religion, religious involvement, works righteousness. He has all the credentials before he came to Christ. Now notice what he says. Philippians 3, 7, 8. But whatever gain I had, he had a lot of gain. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? A lot of gain. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Point number four. Here's our last point. Count the cost. Count the cost. Even though Paul was outwardly blameless, he knew inwardly something was wrong. And this is why he turns the table. He says, whatever gain I had, I, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's this transition that takes place in his life. Everything he was living for, everything that was rightfully his, was counted as loss, nothing, it, not valuable, compared to knowing Christ. Think about all his credentials. We walked through all of them. I mean, circumcision. He was an Israelite, a tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, law, Pharisee, zeal, persecutor, righteousness under the law, blameless. Check, 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 check. The key word in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 is the word count. This little word means to evaluate or assess. You know what he's doing? He's evaluating his life. He's evaluating his past. He's evaluating everything. And he's, he comes up and he, he kind of summarizes it. And he says, you know what? Everything that I had that I thought was amazing, that, that was going to get me into heaven, it, it's spiritual garbage. It's rubbish. It's, it's dung. It's nothing. It's like the parable of um, the treasure in the field. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a treasure in a field. And there's a man that he finds this treasure and then he covers up the treasure. And then what it says, based on the Gospel of Matthew, and I love this. This is like, this is so good. It says, in his joy. In his joy. He sells all that he has and he buys that field. I think this is what Paul is touching on. I think Paul is saying, listen, Christ is the true treasure. He's the treasure in the field, the, the kingdom of heaven. And are you willing to jettison your past? Are you willing to let go of everything? Everything that you thought was grand, every, all the gain, and say, you know what, all of that? Nope. It amounts to a hill of beans. I am trusting in Christ alone. In Christ alone is my Savior. And in Christ alone am I saved and am I forgiven? How do you make Christ the treasure of your life? The Gospel of John tells us 
And I could quote it, but I'd just rather read it. First John, actually, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So stop there and think about that. To those who received him, and then John says, to those who believed in him. So receiving Christ and believing in Christ are the same things. So when you receive Christ, it doesn't say you earn Christ. It's not your performance. You receive Christ. You believe in Christ. It says he gave the right to become children of God. You make Christ the treasure of your heart, the treasure of your life by placing your faith in Christ and in him alone. He realized everything had no value. His race, his religion, his works righteousness, all of it was nothing compared to knowing Christ. I love what Jim Elliott said. I know the context is missions and, and, and giving up and all that, but I think the principle is true. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, Christ calls us to let the past go, not to boast in the flesh, but to put all your confidence, all your boasting in Christ and in him alone. And so I want to leave us with a few, kind of a few thoughts, a few questions. Number one, have you counted the cost? And this is really a time to really reflect. Have you counted the cost? What do I mean by that? Do you have Paul's heartbeat on this? Do you understand what Paul's getting at? That Paul's saying, all my achievements, all my accolades, all my resume, everything that I earned, everything that I was pointing to, that I was banking on those things, X, Y, Z, to get me to heaven, rubbish, dung, spiritual garbage. It amounts to nothing. I need Christ. Have, have you made that commitment to anchor your life to Christ? Listen, the gospel the, the call to follow Christ is very simple. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ by faith. That's the gospel. That's it. It's, no, it's not jumping through hoops. It, it, it's, it's not checklists. It's, it, it's, not, it's not earning favor. It's faith in Christ and him alone. Maybe you are a Christian. You've counted the cost. But are you counting the cost daily? Are you living your life like the man who found the treasure in the field? Are you willing to like let go of things? You know, we live, we live in this, this modern era where it's like there's technology and everything's at our fingertips. And we, we live in a culture that's just like consumed with materialism and hoarding and buying and getting. And it's like Christ calls us to something greater. He calls us to something greater. You know, we're sometimes that we get so um, we get so enamored with the things of this world. We're chasing things, but Christ is like, "I'm the true gain." All that is rubbish. I'm the treasure. I'm the one that you should be pursuing. I'm the great treasure that you sell everything so that you can have me. As believers, God is calling us to count the cost every day to pursue Christ and to live this, this gospel joy day by day in our lives. Let us do that. Let us pursue Christ.
Let us have a right understanding of our past and knowing that everything means nothing, but Christ is everything, and he's all that we need. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for, God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in, in our lives this morning. May, God, may, may we as believers pursue this joy that you tell us in, in your word to pursue, to, to rejoice in you. Lord, cultivate this, this, this attitude of gratitude and this joy in our lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Father God, I, I pray that we would be, as believers, that we would be so grounded in our faith, knowing that salvation is something that is not achieved. It is something that is received, and it's, it's a gift given to us. God, thank you for your son, Christ, who gave his all for us so that he could be our treasure, the greatest treasure of all. Help us, Lord, to live with the mindset of just living life as a blank check, surrendering, pursuing you, knowing that a relationship with you is more costly, more valuable, greater than having the things of this world. Lord, we recognize that we all have a past. And sometimes we have a past where we cling to certain things. And God, I pray that you would pry our fingers off of those things that, like Paul said, it's rubbish. It doesn't mean anything. Help us, Lord, to place our, our heart and our life and our hands around your grace and your love for us. Thank you for Christ and what he did for us. God, I pray that you would do a work in our individual hearts with your word. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.